Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5, please. Romans chapter 5. good to be home and it's good to stand in this pulpit again and uh, be able to speak to you. I, I preached a few times uh, in Lebanon and the last few times I've preached I had to say a sentence and pause, wait for the translator, say another sentence and pause. So if you find me doing that uh, this morning, um, I'm waiting for the translator. I haven't lost my mind, I'm just waiting for the translator. Maybe that is an indication I've lost my mind. I don't know, but I'll try not to do that. I don't think I will, but that was interesting um, to, to preach that way. And I've done it a few times before, but it's just been a long time. And to do that again, uh, it's, it was difficult to, to connect thoughts together like that you normally, how you would normally do it. So I had to really think and adjust uh, to be able to get the point across, do it very succinctly and so on. I thought, you know, maybe I should try this at home. I should be more succinct in getting my points across at home. And uh, the sermons were definitely shorter. And you all said I'm into that, I'm sure, right? Um, I thought that maybe Brother Humphrey should try it too because he likes to go off on these rabbit trails more than I do and it would just get the point across more clearly, right? Um, I'll try not to do that today though. So Romans chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 5 through 8 for our text this morning. The Bible says in Romans 5, verse 5, And hope maketh not ashamed. Understand again, the word hope, you know what that means. It means confident expectation. All right? And so Paul is saying our, our expectation maketh not ashamed, meaning it, it's, we're not going to be disappointed. Uh, the promise of God for our eternity is not going to disappoint us in the end. It's a guarantee for us. Because, and here's the reason why, our hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when ye were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some will even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. During the 1730s and 1740s in America, the American colonies were in the midst of a great revival, which you would know as the Great Awakening. And during that time, there were evangelists like George Whitfield and Isaac Watts who would travel up and down the, the Atlantic coast and they would preach the gospel to the settlers of the New World as people would come in to the New World and get settled. And, and uh, there were other preachers as well, uh, preachers like Jonathan Edwards, for example. You've heard of him and Gilbert Tennant, who they were also part of it. And maybe, maybe uh, to some, definitely to some degree in evangelism, but they were more known for the sermons or the books that they would write and that that would be distributed up and down the Atlantic coast. And those two elements combined together, the evangelism of George Whitfield and the printed materials of Jonathan Edwards, it fueled the Great Awakening. But Jonathan Edwards was also used of the Lord as a preacher. On July 8th, 1741, 
one of history's most recognizable sermons was preached. Jonathan Edwards preached in a town, Enfield, Connecticut, and he preached this famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You've heard of it. The message was preached to a congregation that by all accounts was not responding to the gospel message as were the neighboring communities. There was some sort of holdup, some sort of hindrance to the gospel, and, and even the, the, the lifestyle of those who lived in that community, they weren't responding to the gospel. And, and so Jonathan Edwards was called upon and asked to come and preach to this community in the hopes that they would respond to the gospel. And by all eyewitness accounts, Mr. Edwards rose to that challenge. The text that he used that night in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was Amos 9 in verse 2 and verse 3, where the Bible says, Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent and he shall bite them. That was the text he used to preach that message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. As his method was, Mr. Edwards read the message. He did that usually. He read it in a, in, a, in a level that was monotone in his voice, making sure to not make any eye contact with any of the congregation. That was his normal method. But despite his tone in monotone, the vivid images and illustrations of hell were more than the congregation could handle. On several occasions, Mr. Edwards was interrupted by screams and shrieks from the congregation of those in attendance. And, and those in attendance would later describe that they felt that though as any moment, they could slip into the pit of hell. After asking for silence, Jonathan Edwards would continue with the message. The message lasted nearly six hours long. There is no record or account that puts a number on the lives that that message influenced. It's no doubt in the hundreds of thousands. That message was used mightily in the Great Awakening. That message is still being used this very day to help sinners. And I read all of that and told that story to say that I wholeheartedly believe the Bible when it says in Psalm 7 and verse 11, that God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. I believe that. I also believe Ephesians 2, in verse 3, that says, "...among whom also we all had our conversation, or our lifestyle, in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath." I believe the Bible when it says that we in our natural state, are children of wrath. The message that Jonathan Edwards preached was sinners in the hands of an angry God. I believe those passages of Scripture, but I also believe 1 John 4 in verse 7 that says, God is love. And we ought to love the brethren because God is love. I believe John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world. I believe those passages too. 
Those verses describe who or what God really is. He is love. And I've heard people say that God only loves the saved. God doesn't love the sinner. But that's not true according to the Word of God. And so the question is, how do we reconcile those two statements? That God is angry with the wicked every day, but God so loved the world. How do we reconcile those two statements? Does God love the sinner or is He angry with them? Does God contradict Himself? Does the Word of God contradict itself? Both statements are true of God. And how do we describe it? How would we explain it? Well, we could maybe explain it like it's two sides of the same coin. If I were to take a quarter or a, 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 and, and show you the picture of George Washington on one side and describe it all, you know, you'd get an idea of what that quarter looked like. But if I never told you about the other side of that coin, you wouldn't have a full understanding of what that coin was. But it's two sides of the same coin. And it's the same with the nature of God. We could always just talk about the wrath of God, and, and we could say God is angry with sinners every day, and we could paint the picture of what kind of a God He is. We could also talk about just the other side, that God is love, God is love, God is love, which He is. And people wouldn't understand that there's a consequence for our sin. It's the same God. Both statements are true, is the point that I'm trying to make here. Two different sides of the same coin. Both sides need to be preached. But understand this. It is the love of God that He delights in. The Bible says He delights in mercy more than judgment. It's the love of God that actually rescues us from the other side of the coin, which is the wrath of God. We need to understand that. In Romans 5, in verse 8 conveys that truth for us. Where the Bible says, but God, that's a great statement, by the way, but God. If you think about that statement, that is the only hope we have, but God. If it wasn't for God, we would be without hope. We would be lost. We would have no hope of eternity, but God. But God commendeth or proved His love toward us. What did God prove toward you and me, that He loves sinners. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now in context, verse 8 is tied to verse 5. And verse 5 says, And hope, that confident expectation, maketh not ashamed. We're not going to be ashamed at the end. We're not going to be disappointed in the end. Why? Because... The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And so in verses 5 through 8, Paul is actually explaining why our hope for eternity is not going to disappoint us because of God's love. Also in context, in chapter 5, what Paul is doing is he's describing the blessings of justification by faith. It goes back to chapter 4. 
And Paul is describing, first of all, we're saved by faith. We're justified by faith. And then Paul is describing the blessings of being saved, the blessings of justified, being justified by faith. And he, in verse 1, he talks about we have peace with God. This is a blessing of being saved. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we come into this world, we're already enemies of God. And Paul is going to talk about us being enemies in verse in just a little bit. But part of the blessing of being saved is we're no longer enemies of God. We now have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. Amen. We also have access to God. This is another blessing of being justified. He says in verse 2, "...by whom also, by Christ, we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand." We would have no hope of relationship with God or access to God the Father if it were not for Jesus Christ and being justified by faith. The fact that you can come to God and you can talk to Him, you can pray to Him, that we can pray specific prayers and God answers them 9,000 miles away is a blessing of being justified by faith. You can have access to God. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, they didn't have access to God like that. Once every year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to make an atonement for the sins of the people. No one could have access to God. But through Christ, the way of access to God has been opened. The veil of the temple is rent in twain. Amen? And now we can come freely before the throne of God, according to Hebrews, because of Christ. What a great privilege and blessing of being justified by faith. This is what Paul is talking about. And then he talks about the hope of glory. Our eternity is a blessing of being justified. In verse 2, at the end he says, and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the confident expectation that I am going to be in the presence of the Lord, whether I die in this life and then, or I'm here at the rapture. Either way, I'm not going to be disappointed. My eternity is settled because of Christ. That's a blessing of being justified, okay? You understand this? This is the context that Paul is working through. And as he gets down to verse 5, he says that hope, that confident expectation that you have is not going to disappoint. And the reason it won't is because the love of God is shed abroad in your heart. And how do you know God loves you? He gets to verse 8, because God proved it. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You following this? Makes sense here? Why can we be confident? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And that, that phrase, shed abroad, it means to pour forth. It means to gush out. It means to run greedily. God's love is ever abundant. It is gushing out on you and me every day, all the time. Where would we be without God's love? And so, the thing that anchors our hope is this abundant outpouring of God's love within our heart through the Spirit of God. 
And so in our verses, Paul is going to show us why God's love is a sure thing that guarantees our hope of heaven, that it's a sure thing as well. And the thesis for the message here this morning is that our hope, our expectation of heaven is secure because it is based on God's love that sent Christ to die in our place while we were yet sinners. And I want to preach to you this morning on this subject, sinners in the hands of a loving God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us today with this truth. And Lord, that you'd encourage our hearts. And Lord, that you'd also bring conviction to the heart of the one that is lost, that's never been reborn, that's never repented of their sin trusted Christ. Would you have your will and way in this hour? In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope of heaven is secure because it's based on God's love for us and nothing else. In other words, God's amazing love is not based on us getting our act together. It's not based on us turning over a new leaf. We've messed up in our life. Now we're trying to get it together. It's not based on our track record of performance either. That doesn't guarantee the flow of God. His love is not based on my performance to Him. Rather, God's love is based on the fact that God Himself is love. 1 John chapter 4. Go over there with me. Just hold your place and look in 1 John 4. And look at verse 7, please. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested or made known the love of God toward us, Because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And you know the word propitiation means an appeasement of the wrath of God. He sent Jesus Christ to be the appeasement of God's wrath on our behalf. And we're going to get to this point in just a little while that the love of God, listen, that is the rescue from the other side of the coin, which is the wrath of God. We would have no hope without that. God is gracious. He extends His love. He extends His grace to sinners apart from and in spite of anything within ourselves. And so, first of all, it means that our hope of heaven is secure because it's, based, it's not based on anything good in us. Paul emphasizes that in our text. Go back to Romans chapter 5. And notice some of the wording in Romans 5. In verse 6, he says, For when we were yet without strength. At the end of verse 6, he says, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, he says, God commends His love in that while we were yet sinners, 
Notice the words that are being used. Look down to verse 10. For if when we were enemies of God. You see the words that are being used here? Paul is emphasizing that our hope of heaven is is not based on anything that is good in us. He describes us as sinners. He describes us as without strength, as enemies of God, ungodly people. That word without strength in verse 6, notice it. When we were yet without strength, it means impotent. It means helpless. When we were without strength, in the context, it means incapable of working any righteousness in ourselves. We are helpless to bring about anything righteous. It means total inability in the spiritual sense. That's what you and I are, completely incapable in the spiritual sense of anything righteous or good. Let's see what the Bible says about our helpless spiritual condition outside of Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Here we're going to find that the Bible describes us as spiritually dead, living in disobedience to God. Hebrews 2, or excuse me, Ephesians 2 and verse 1. And you hath he quickened, or made alive, who were... Before you were saved, you were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past, in your former life, you walked or lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. In other words, the Bible describes us in our unsaved condition, as spiritually dead and living in disobedience to God. That has consequences, friend. We need God to quicken us or make us alive. Go to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3 and verse 3. In context here, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus who was a religious leader of the day. And note what Jesus says to him in verse 3, John 3 and verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, the kingdom of God, as has been rightly pointed out by one of the brethren this morning, the kingdom of God is the rule of God in the hearts of men. Except a man be born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter into, he cannot understand the kingdom of God, the rule of God in the hearts of men. So as Jesus is talking to this religious leader, Nicodemus, he says, except a man be born again. Now, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus was about as religious as you can get. But all that religion couldn't get him into the kingdom of God. He needed the new birth. And just as we could not produce our natural birth by ourselves, by our own efforts, by our own power, so it is spiritually. It's got to be an act of God. You cannot save yourself because we are helpless in producing anything righteous. The Bible also describes us as unable to see the light. In our natural state, we can't see the light of the gospel in order to be saved. 
2 Corinthians 4.4 says, Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine in unto them, and they should be saved. We're not able to understand spiritual truth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Know what the Bible describes here concerning the, the natural sinful man. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 14, the Bible says, But the natural man, that's the unsaved man, that's the man who comes into this world, he receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. We're unable to understand spiritual truth. This is why the Bible talks about and describes those who are ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You can know all the facts about Jesus Christ that there are to know. You can be as religious as you can possibly be. But are you born again? Are you saved? Do you really know Jesus Christ as your Savior? There might be somebody sitting in this room today. You might even be a member of Plaque Road Baptist Church. You might be ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In your natural state, we are incapable. God has to open our eyes to understand the truth and understand the gospel to where we see ourselves for what we really are. That we are sinners. And God is angry with my sin. We're not seeking after God. Romans 3.11 Since we're in Romans, and we need to go back to our text anyway, look at Romans chapter 3. In verse 11. Verse 10, let's just go back to it. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all, this is talking about the human condition, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. It means to render useless. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. I think if we were to go back and look and walk through these other chapters in Romans, you would see, and especially in chapter 1, you would see Paul's indictment on the human race, that it's wicked, it's sinful, and it's just spiraling downward and downward and downward to the bottom of the barrel. And then in chapter 2, Paul says, He's speaking to Jews. He's like, you Jews, though, are no different. You can't judge those Gentiles because you do the same things. And the conclusion is, in chapter 3, that we're all guilty and we all fall short of the glory of God. That none, there's none that doeth good. No, not one. And that leads to us being unable to submit to God's law and unable to please God in our natural state. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 7, Paul says it this way. He says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. 
in our natural state, we don't seek after God, we cannot please God. We are incapable, we are helpless. And Paul states that the mind is set on the flesh, that it's hostile towards the things of God. So when Paul says we were yet without strength in our text in verse 6, the essence of that statement is that man is unable to change his sinful nature by his own efforts. We're helpless to do that. But Paul doesn't stop there. Go back to our text in Romans 5 and look again in verse 6. He says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Here we're ungodly. The word refers to without reverence for or fear of God. It literally means to live your life as if God does not exist. Oh, I believe in God. I believe He exists. That's what everybody says, or most most people would say, especially in this room, right? But how often do we live our life as if He doesn't exist? In other words, when God says, Thus saith the Lord, and this is the way, walk ye in it, and we disregard it as if He doesn't exist, as if there's no consequence to what He says, what are we doing? We're living in disobedience to God. As if He doesn't exist. But what if He was standing here in the room, and He said, do this. Right? What would we do? I think the point is that the natural man, and sadly sometimes even the Christian man, decides that they want to live their life according to what pleases them. And it causes a lot of trouble. And because we're helpless to change our sinful nature, We live our lives as we please without regard for God or for His law and for His will. Understand this. To be ungodly, it doesn't mean that one must wallow in sin. That's what we might imagine. Oh, he's ungodly. He just lives a life of sin. Wallowing in sin. The unsaved churchgoer maybe even the member, is just as godless as an Adolf Hitler. Oh, that's a strong statement. I'm not possibly as bad as Adolf Hitler. It's a true statement. When a person refuses to bow before the Lord in salvation or refuses to be in obedience to His will, he is essentially setting himself up as his own God. Therefore, he does as he pleases. He worships himself without any regard to the true God. Hence, he is godless. He's ungodly. That comes with consequences. Verse 8 Paul says we're also sinners. While we were yet sinners, the word means to miss the mark. It carries the idea of an archer who's aiming at a target and he puts his arrow in and he pulls it back and he's aiming at the target. He's aiming at the bullseye to the best of his ability. He's a marksman and he shoots his arrow and then he misses the target completely. 
it pictures man as he tries and fails his way through life. No matter how good a man tries to be, he can never be good enough. Though he might aim high, he might set his standards high, still he always falls short of God's standard. Mankind will always miss the mark. We're sinners. But then Paul says in verse 10, we're enemies. And I'm going to jump ahead to verse 10. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Paul is saying this is what we were before we were justified by faith. We're enemies of God. Paul describes our past as being at enmity with God, enemies of God. We're hostile toward Him, alienated from Him, opposed to His rule in our life. And the application that I want to make with all of this is maybe you're thinking, man, that's awfully depressing. (laughs) I'm an enemy of God. I missed the mark. I'm incapable. I'm helpless. I'm godless. That really tears down my self-esteem. (laughs) Doesn't make me feel very good. But friend, if we don't see the depths of sin from which God rescues us, we will never appreciate His great love for us. Christ didn't come to help us polish our self-esteem or to feel good about ourselves. He came to die for our sin in order to reconcile us to God. If you don't see yourself as helpless, if you don't see yourself as wretched and vile, if you don't see yourself as in trouble with God, condemned with the wrath of God, if you don't see that, you'll never appreciate the love of God toward you. You won't see your your need, your desperate need of a Savior. That's the problem with religion today. It's a problem with preaching, not preaching both sides of the coin. God is love. God is love. He is. That is who He is. But He's also angry with the wicked every day. And that's what I need to see in order to flip the coin and turn to the love of God. The second thought this morning is that our hope of heaven is secure because it's based on God's gracious love for me. It's not based on any merit of my own. It's based on His love for me. Look again in verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God, who's different than I am, commendeth or proved His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word commendeth, it means to show, it means to prove. God demonstrated, He showed, He proved His love. God proved His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, still hating God, still in rebellion against God, 
still not seeking after God, still enemies of God, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the ultimate proof of love. God's gracious love for us is far higher than human love. Notice that in verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, or perhaps for a good man, some would even dare to die. This is a human level type of love. And he says, some people would give their life for those that they love. Scarcely for a righteous man, possibly for a righteous man, some would dare would die. For a good man, some would even dare to die. It's possible that you can love enough to give your life for someone else. Yes, that's true. And the Bible says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Paul grants that humans do have the capacity to love like this. But the question is, who would you give your life for? Would you give your life for your father? I would have, when my dad was alive. Would you give your life for your mother? Absolutely. I would lay it down. For your family? Of course. For your friends? Definitely. I will love till the end. I will die with you. Humans have the capacity to do that. Not everybody will do that, though. But there is the capacity to do it. Let me tell you a story. It's a true story. There were two miners who were trapped in a mine because of a cave-in. They were the only two left. They had two oxygen masks. But one of them was damaged in the cave-in. That left them with one. Only one of these men would be able to get out alive. One of the miners, who was a single man, handed the good mask to the other miner and he said, Here, you take it. You've got a wife. You've got children. I don't have anybody. I can go. You've got to stay. As the story unfolded, that's exactly what happened. The man ended up losing good air to breathe, eventually suffocated and died. He gave up his life so the other could live. We've all heard stories of soldiers who've given their lives for their comrades. Maybe there's a patrol that's going out and a grenade gets thrown and it's right in the middle of the group and you've heard the stories of a soldier who pounces on the grenade and covers it with his own body to absorb the blast so that all the others could live but he dies we've all heard stories like that examples of rare courage and rare sacrifice however they all have one thing in common one theme and that theme is that it demonstrates the capacity to give ourselves for the sake of those that we love now family friends fellow soldiers that's one thing. But can you imagine giving your life for your enemy? 
Human love has its limits. But thankfully, God's love does not. Sinners in the hands of a loving God. I'm an enemy of God. I'm helpless. I'm ungodly. A hater of God. And yet, in His love for this enemy, He sent His Son to rescue me from the wrath side of the coin. Verse 8 tells us that's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't die for the good. No, no. Verse 8 tells us He died for the sinner, the ungodly, His enemy. God's love is so much greater than human love. And God's gracious love is a perfect love. It's a rescuing kind of love. Notice verse 8 again. But God commendeth His love toward us in that. That's an important section, transition right there. In that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was Christ, His beloved Son, in whom He was well pleased. It was Christ, the altogether lovely One. It was Christ, the sinless Son of God. It was Christ, the Creator of all things, the One who is the express image of God's person. It is Christ who is the rose of Sharon. It is Christ who is the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. He's the One who died. For you, the one who knew no sin became sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of God in him. What did he do? According to this verse, he died. Verse 8, Christ died for who? For us. His enemies. The word die is prominent in these verses. It occurs once in verse 6. It occurs twice in verse 7. And once again in verse 8. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. In Romans 6.23, Christ had to die to pay the penalty for our sin. Christ had to die to rescue us from the wrath of God and the anger of God toward our sin. That's what that means. Became the punishment that we deserve. He died as the just for the unjust so that He might bring us to God. 1 Peter 3. And the conclusion is this, friend. If we were helpless, ungodly sinners in need of Christ's death to save us, then salvation and the hope of heaven cannot in any sense be due to human merit or work or righteousness of our own. That is impossible. These verses not only describe the love of God toward us, but they 
do away with all works-based salvation. Our dependence, or our salvation rather, depends on not our own loveliness, but the constancy of the love of God. That's tremendously good news, friend. It means that our hope of heaven is secure because it doesn't have anything to do with us. In fact, it's in spite of us. It has everything to do with God's gracious love for us while we were yet sinners. Sinners in the hands of a loving God. You got to come to the end of yourself. You got to come to the end of who you think you are and see yourself as hopeless, helpless, an enemy in danger. And as Charles Spurgeon put it, you've got to stand before God, convicted, condemned, with the rope already around your neck, so that you will weep for joy when God, at the right time, sends Christ into your life as your Savior. We'll never understand and appreciate the love of God until we understand what we were and what God has rescued us from. Amen. If you're here today and you're not saved, you can be. You can experience the love of God. But you've got to come to the end of yourself and see yourself as convicted and condemned. Then you'll know the real love of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd use your word this morning. Draw men to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.